Welcome to the Border Chronicle podcast. Have you wondered how the Border Patrol got so much power? How they can roll into places like Portland, Oregon in unmarked vehicles and snatch people right off the streets? Or how they are a police force that is permitted to racially profile? In this discussion with geographer Reese Jones, author of the new book, Nobody is Protected, How the Border Patrol Became the Most Dangerous Police Force in the United States, we tackle these questions and more. I have known Reese for many years, and this is his fourth book on borders. Please see the text for links to his other work. And I've learned so much from Reese's scholarship and investigations into borders, and this book is no different. He writes this history of the Border Patrol in vivid, page-turning prose. Really, trust me, you won't want to put this book down. To begin, I ask him about the three stories he uses in his introduction. That includes Portland, as I previously mentioned, a 1970s-era Supreme Court case, and an experience he had of being pulled over five times by the Border Patrol in one hour, and how that provides an intriguing framing for the book. What follows is his answer. Please enjoy. So I start Nobody is Protected um, with the, the story of Portland and the story, story of Felix Brignone Ponce, um, but then also my experience. So almost a decade ago, um, over a decade ago, when I was working on my book, Border Walls, um, I was driving on a border road in Texas with a rancher and I was stopped five times in less than an hour by the border patrol. Um, you know, sirens, lights flashing. And it just, I just couldn't believe, is it really possible that they can do this, that it's legal for them to stop the same vehicle five times without any probable cause that I've done anything wrong, just simply driving on an American highway. Um, and so I decided I need to, needed to look into this and understand how this was possible. And um, along the way, um, the I, I learned about these important Supreme Court cases in the 1970s that gave the Border Patrol a lot of this authority. Um, but as I was working on the book, I also realized I needed to tell kind of this longer story of the Border Patrol from its foundings in the 1920s. Um, really is a racial police force. It was created in 1924 to enforce the uh, Immigration Act, which was based in eugenics, um, which was really about keeping non-white people out of the United States. And that's why it was established two days after that to, um, to be the force that prevented non-white people from entering the country. Um, and then to see how that traces forward all the way to the present, where the Border Patrol has become this, this large force, the Customs and Border Protection, so also including the, the people at, at airports and uh, ports of entry, is the largest police force in the United States. And so um, I, I wanted to understand how it grew so big, how it has so much authority, and then why is it using that authority seemingly at places that that aren't the border, that don't make sense for it to be. Um, and, and that culminates with the story of, of the Border Patrol grabbing people off the street in Portland um, at Black Lives Matter protests um, with uh, without any explanation for why, just pulling up with an unmarked van, grabbing them off the street and, and driving off with them in the middle of the night, which, you know, 
looks a lot like an authoritarian, uh, you know, militia force. Um, and so um, it's uh, the, the book really is is in a lot of ways a cautionary tale of how all this power has accrued to the Border Patrol over the years and what a future authoritarian president or government could do with that uh, in the future. And, and it's concerning. Yeah, is that it would be because you do in the subtitle of the book, you describe um, the Border Patrol as the most dangerous police force. I think that's how you word it. Um, and is that is what you just explained? Is that why, um, you know, the, all those elements that you just brought in? Is that why you would say that or would there be anything more that you would add? Yeah, I think I think the dangerous in the title refers to several different things. I mean, the in terms of the lives of immigrants, um, the border patrol is extremely dangerous, right? By their prevention through deterrence system, um, which forces people out into the deserts and their interior checkpoints up to 100 miles from the border, people have to really risk their lives. So it's it's causing a lot of deaths simply having the border patrol in that area. So it's dangerous for people on the move. Um, the border patrol is dangerous for the the rights of American citizens, and um, because of the Supreme Court cases that I talk about, and nobody is protected. In the 1970s, the Border Patrol has a lot lower standards to stop a vehicle, to interrogate someone, to set up these checkpoints deep inside of the United States in ways that would seem to violate the Fourth Amendment rights to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures for immigrants and American citizens alike. And so that kind of erosion of the rights of the Constitution um, is extremely concerning. And that's in, in a vast area. It's uh, I think people are often surprised how deep the border zone goes into the United States. And so it's uh, 100 miles from borders and coastlines, right? So about two thirds of the US population lives in that border zone. Many of the largest cities um, and cities you wouldn't think of as the border, places like Chicago, um, where I am right now in Honolulu, um, Seattle, New York, Washington, DC, all of those are in that border zone. Um, but then the third way the Border Patrol is dangerous is that the, the reality is, and I, I use some statistics in the book to detail this, um, the Border Patrol really doesn't have that much immigration work to do at the border itself. The average agent makes just a handful of apprehensions per month. And so it's meant that they've continued to have what you might call mission creep into different sorts of activities. And they have a willingness to do this interior policing that we see with their actions in Portland, the way that the Trump administration repurposed Border Patrol teams to do these other sorts of activities. Um, we can see that in Uvalde, Texas as well, right? Who was it that eventually stormed the school and, um, and captured the shooter? It's it's the border patrol that does that, right? So um, why are they even there, right? What are what are they doing in that sort of a situation? It just demonstrates this creep into things that aren't what their original purpose was supposed to be. Um, and so we've seen that continuing to ratchet up, particularly after September 11th. And a lot of your work, I think, is as detailed how that happened in the, the post-September 11th environment um, to create this very powerful force without many restrictions on their activities with immunity from um, from civil lawsuits if they do violate your rights um, that has a vision towards being this national police force. Um, and that should concern everyone. I'm reminded of when I was um, 
interviewing uh, uh, a CBP, a Customs and Border Protection official in uh, Washington. And he told me um, during the interview, I can't even remember what the exact question was, but he said, we are exempt from the Fourth Amendment. And I think he saw my, he saw my look. I said, you really, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I've heard that. It was a, quite a surprise to hear um, uh, the, the official just say it. Then he kind of waved his hand. He said, the Supreme Court ruled that many years ago. <laughs> and, that, and, and, I, and I kept thinking about that incident when, as I was reading, nobody is protected because I, I'm like, oh, that's what he meant when he waved his hand. And he said that that's when the, the Supreme Court, um, and, and that's one of the things I um, really loved about Nobody is Protected is that it is, it's a page turner like um, almost at times like a novel uh, as as reading, you know, through those 1970s Supreme Court cases that have so much importance and relevance to, 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 to what, what's going on right now. And the way that you describe it, the way that you write it, you go into the cases, you're, you're with all the different characters, you get to know them. Um, and I think I think that's a really I mean, it, it's a it's a really great way. I think it's a real strength real strength of the of the of the book um and I was wondering if you could like what um maybe talk about one of or one of the supreme court cases that you think um people should know about you know that really does uh you know a lot of things that you see in the border patrol today you know you can look back and it's rooted back to one of those cases yeah, so the these three there are three big cases in the 1970s. In 1973, um, there's Alameda Sanchez versus United States, which was whether the Border Patrol could search any vehicle in that 100-mile zone without any cause whatsoever, which is outrageous. But as I detail in the book, the Supreme Court came within weeks of allowing that, right? There was this last-minute change of heart that I detail in the book um, that describes how one of the justices was convinced by one of his clerks um, that, that he shouldn't approve that. So we, we really were in within weeks of having the Border Patrol able to search any vehicle in that vast 100-mile zone. Um, then there's the 1975 case, Brignone Ponce, which we've talked about a little bit, and I can talk about it more right now. Um, and then in 1976, um, which is Martinez Fuerte, which was about the checkpoints. Um, it's striking that the Border Patrol was created in the 1920s, and these these questions about the relationship between the Fourth Amendment and their ability to stop any vehicle in the border zone and search it doesn't come up till the 1970s, right? So there's 50 years of the Border Patrol operating with this kind of vast authority in that border zone. And so a lot of their practices and traditions are built on that kind of foundation, right? One is a racist police force, and then two as a force that thinks the law doesn't apply to it, right? The, the early agents, as I talk about in the book, are often drawn from frontier law enforcement, Texas Rangers, and they have this sense that they that, that whatever they do is the law. Um, and I think that sort of ethos is carried through the, the present day. Um, out of those cases, maybe, uh, well, in terms of detailing these Supreme Court cases, um, one advantage I have now is that they are 50 years ago at this point. And so that means that the papers of all of these justices are now public. Um, and so you can kind of dive into the background and not just see what they decided, but you can see why they decided it. So um, in the book, I talk about the memos that the justices are writing back and forth to each other and kind of why they felt like they needed to make these decisions that they did. Um, and so the, the 
probably the most important case is the 1975 Brignone-Ponce case. Um, and so this is a case where Felix Brignone-Ponce was driving 60 miles north of the border um, between San Diego and, uh, and Los Angeles on I-5, on an interstate highway. Um, and a couple of Border Patrol agents saw him drive by with two passengers in his car and thought they looked Mexican. Um, and so they pulled over the car and interrogated them based solely on their racial appearance. Um, and so the question for the Supreme Court was, is a stop based only on the race of the individual legal? Um, the other characters, you kind of alluded to, to the way that I tell that story, um, there are these two uh, lawyers in San Diego that take up all three of these main cases. Um, they were federal public defenders, um, a, a guy named Chuck Sevilla and John Cleary, both in their early 30s at the time. Um, and they have this kind of abiding belief that the Border Patrol is violating the rights of American citizens. And they have this mission to take it to the Supreme Court and challenge it. Um, at the same time, courts around the US ha suddenly have all these cases. Um, and they want some clarity from the Supreme Court about exactly what the Border Patrol can and can't do. Um, so it culminates in, in Brignone Ponce in, in 1975. Um, and the Supreme Court eventually decides unanimously that the stop was not constitutional, that stopping someone based only on their race isn't allowed. Um, and if they had stopped there, it would be a great decision, right? Um, but because of this background pressure that they felt in order to come to a broader um, kind of uh, mandate for the Border Patrol, they go beyond that. And so they decide they need to list exactly when the Border Patrol can make a stop. Um, and so the ruling decides that Border Patrol agents don't need probable cause like regular police officers. They don't need to believe that a crime has been committed and that if they went to a judge, they'd be able to get a warrant. Instead, they just need reasonable suspicion. And they need, according to the Supreme Court, to have at least two facts of reasonable suspicion. So the one fact of the race of the driver wasn't enough for, um, for this 1975 case. But they go on to say that they can use race as one of those two facts um, that they can use to stop someone. Um, and if you look at the ruling, the other facts are so broad. Um, it's things like driving on a border road, um, driving in an overloaded vehicle, driving too fast, driving too slow, um, driving a station wagon. Um, but it, it, then it includes race as well. And it specifically mentions Mexican haircuts and Mexican mode of dress mm -hmm. as things that the Border Patrol can use um, to, uh, to stop a vehicle. And so this, this Customs and Border Protection official that you were talking to, although he's wrong in that the Border Patrol said that they can stop anyone and that the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to them, He's he's really so he's he's wrong legally, but he's right in practice because the the facts are so broad. You really can come up with at least two reasons to stop any vehicle in that border zone, and the border patrol does routinely do that. I, I mentioned before I was stopped five times in one hour, um, and it would be based on these sorts of characteristics, right? Driving on a border road, driving in an area known for smuggling, right? And that's enough based on what the Supreme Court says for the border patrol to stop any vehicle driving on a border road, looking Mexican, that's enough um, for the Border Patrol to make a stop anywhere in that 100-mile border zone. One quick question about that. Did it, could, could they use a, um, a, a racial profile, you know, use racial profiling as one of the facts and then say somebody's haircut as the second one? Or is that like doubling it? 
or do you know? <laughs> I, I think generally the they try not to use the racial one as the primary thing. So even if in their minds they did use the racial profiling, um, which they can do, the Supreme Court has said they can do it. Um, and the Obama administration in 2014, Eric Holder was the attorney general at the time. They reviewed racial profiling for federal police officers, um, FBI, Secret Service, but then also the border officials. And they banned it for most federal um, officers, but they kept an exception for the Border Patrol. So the Supreme Court has said they can do racial profiling. The Department of Justice and the Obama administration, and it's still in, in effect today, has said they can do racial profiling. So um, so it's legal for the Border Patrol and for, for customs agents at the ports of entry to do racial profiling. Um, Typically, though, they, they tend to focus on other characteristics, right? So um, the, uh, the ACLU has done, um, Jeff Boyce worked with them, he's a, a geographer, um, to look in Michigan about how they, they talked about this reasonable suspicion. And if you look at those reports, you know, in, in one report, it's the driver wouldn't look at me, right? And so that made it suspicious. And so I pulled them over to, to ask questions. The next report, the driver kept staring at me all the time. That was suspicious, right? And so I pulled them over and and interviewed them, right? So the 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 factors are so broad that the border patrol, in effect, can stop every single vehicle in the border patrol to ask. I mean, in the border zone to ask questions of the driver and the passengers. Yeah, I remember one time uh, I was in a small caravan and we we're going to the border in Arizona, and um, we were pulled over by the border patrol. And when we asked why, it was they said. Oh, it's because of the the other car had California plates, and that was that was the only explanation they gave us. Yep. California plates. Um, yeah. So I wanted. Oh, first of all, there's another. There. No. Speaking of the Supreme, before we move on from the Supreme Court, there was a case right that was just um, deter, um ruled upon in June that continues along this legacy around the Fourth Amendment. Could you just say a few words about? that case um, and how that's relevant to all the research that you've done in your book? Yeah. So I obviously don't talk about this case in the book because it had, it happened after um, afterwards, but this is Egbert versus Boulay. So Robert Boulay was an American citizen um, in Washington state who was on his property, standing in his driveway. Um, and a border patrol agent, Eric Egbert, pulled into his driveway and accused Robert Boulay of harboring someone who was undocumented. Um, he threw Robert against a car and then threw him onto the ground, right? So a clear example of assault against an American citizen in his own driveway, right? Um, so the Supreme Court case was whether Robert Boulay could sue the, the Border Patrol agent for damages for um, this violation of his rights. Um, and it was based on a case also from the 1970s, which is Bivens versus six unnamed agents, um, which had created a small window for situations where they're kind of egregious violations of your constitutional rights that you could sue federal agents. The Supreme Court had already narrowed that in 2020 um, in, uh, in uh, Hernandez v. Mesa, which is a cross-border shooting case um, in, in El Paso. Um, and it said that the family of a 15-year-old boy who'd been killed by a Border Patrol agent um, didn't have a right to sue um, the, the agent for damages. Um, but Egbert versus Belay completely closes that down. So the court ruled that um, Border Patrol agents and all federal officers 
are immune from prosecution if the violation of your constitutional rights happens in the course of their normal duties. So if they're doing their normal duties and then they violate your, your rights in that process, even if it's an egregious violation, they're immune from being prosecuted for that. So it goes beyond, we, we often hear qualified immunity for like local or state police. Um, this is complete immunity for the border patrol and federal agents. And so um, that's extremely concerning because they, they operate in this 100 mile zone um, and they already have all of these exceptions to their practices. Um, and now it means if they do have even a, an egregious violation of your rights, you can't sue them for it. So um, it's an extremely concerning decision. The Supreme Court, though, they, they in many of these cases, they pointed their finger back towards Congress to say, um, the the problem here is the way that Congress has written these laws. And if Congress doesn't like this immunity that they've given to federal agents, then they should change it, right? And the if Congress doesn't like the border patrol operating 100 miles away from the border and setting up checkpoints on a highway and stopping every single vehicle, then Congress should change that the, their um, authorization for the border patrol. So a lot of these issues, um, the courts have decided to defer to Congress um, and to allow them to make these decisions. And so um, it creates the situation where they're allowing essentially Congress to uh, legislate violations of the Constitution, which um, is uh, not supposed to be possible, right? But um, the, because of this idea of a, the plenary power of Congress to deal with factors that are external to the United States and they treat immigration as an external issue, um, then they tend to defer to Congress's authority in that area. The problem with the Border Patrol, of course, is they're not operating just at the border or outside of the United States. They're operating 100 miles inside the United States from borders and coastlines. And so that uh, decision to defer um, means that it has a, a really negative effect on the rights of citizens and immigrants alike. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's pretty, and it's a, it's just, and it's interesting that this kind of, I guess, legacy of Supreme Court decisions, and you know, making, making things. Let's go back to your words. You know, the most dangerous police force, even more dangerous, like unable to be touched, even right. Um, you know, you hear about immigration reform, and you know, there's. Like, or let's just talk about the border patrol. And here's the question. Can the border patrol be reformed? Is that possible? But if you were in charge right now and you could do anything you wanted with a border patrol, what, what would you do? What do you think would be the best way forward? Well, if I had a magic wand, as you're describing, and I could do anything I wanted to with the border patrol, I would, I would get rid of the border patrol, right? The, um, the United States didn't have a border patrol for almost 150 years, right? It wasn't created until the 1920s, and it was created to enforce racist laws. Um, and if we look at the practice of the border patrol since then, its effect has been racist, right? It has been to create a police force to enforce laws using racial profiling that have a racial impact on who can enter the United States, um, but also have these impacts on the lives of people. They result in a lot of deaths of people who are simply trying to migrate to work to contribute to the US economy or to look to, for safety, to get look for asylum in the United States and are dying because of the existence of the border patrol. Um, and now they have this ability to operate so deep in the United States is violating the rights of American citizens as well. So if I had the magic wand, 
I would get rid of the Border Patrol. We, we don't need it. Um, it's not something that is essential to the functioning of a country, um, and it has a lot of negative effects on immigrants and citizens uh, in the United States. Um, I don't have that magic wand, though. Um, so I think you can also think more pragmatically about what could be done to rein in the Border Patrol a little bit. Um, and I think if you look at the, the range of things that we've talked about today, um, the 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 one thing that could have the most immediate impact on those on, in terms of migrant deaths, in terms of violation of Americans' rights um, inside the United States, it's the size of the border zone. Um, and this was also something that I, I talk about and nobody is protected um, that was a little surprising to me. I, I had just assumed, and I think a lot of people assume, that there must be a good reason that we have a border zone of 100 miles from borders and coastlines. Um, but as I detail in the book, it's a completely arbitrary decision. In, in the 1920s and 30s, Congress was making efforts to rein the Border Patrol in, to get them to go back to the borderline. They say over and over again, they had no intention for them to be able to stop people without a warrant inside the United States. Um, by the 1940s, though, they, they do allow the Border Patrol to operate in the United States, but Congress only says they can do it from a reasonable distance from the border, but they don't define that. Um, and then in just in an administrative decision in 1947, that distance is set as 100 miles from borders and coastlines. Um, and it's just re remained the same since then. No one has changed it. Um, but it's not in the law, right? So it could be changed, right? It's something that the Department of Homeland Security, the Biden administration could revisit tomorrow and start to should change that. Um, and they should, right? So if we made the border zone um, within, say, well, well, the Border Patrol, they make 58% of their apprehensions within one mile of the border, right? So um, if the border zone, say, was five miles from the border, um, that could have an immediate impact on migrant deaths because the majority of migrant deaths happen because they're trying to get past checkpoints deep inside the United States. That's what forces people to trek 70 miles through the deserts of Arizona around your, your home there in Tucson. It's, uh, it's why they were people in the back of that tractor trailer in San Antonio, Texas. It's to get by these interior checkpoints that are so far from the border itself. So moving the the border zone to within five miles of the border would end the need for people to do those extremely dangerous things. And we'd see a dramatic reduction in migrant deaths immediately um, if, if the Department of Homeland Security would do that. That would also reduce the impact on American citizens as well. The Most of those violations that we're talking about um, uh, at checkpoints where they can do racial profiling, where they can stop every vehicle, um, those happen dozens of miles 100 miles from the border itself. So if the Border Patrol has moved much closer to the border, um, those violations of the Fourth Amendment would be uh, would be fewer. The chances for agents to violate the rights of American citizens would be reduced if they were kept much closer to the border itself. Um, so again, that wouldn't be my magic wand solution, um, but that would be a, a pragmatic solution and something that really could be achieved uh, in the Biden administration immediately. So you're saying that there's very, even easy practical decisions that could be made tomorrow or even today or even right now somewhere in the Biden administration that could really change the landscape of the border enforcement apparatus. That's, um, uh, and that's, you know, I, I like how you you mentioned that, like the, the, the surprising element of, um, 
you know, understanding that the hundred mile part of the hundred miles zone was just an administrative decision. So it could be just changed so easily. And that's, um, well, but Todd, you know, nothing is easy in the government. Yeah, I mean, I know. <laughs> there would be a, an, a long review process and, you know, it, yeah. it would, but, but it is changeable, right? It is not legislated, right? So it's something that could be changed for sure. Similarly, the use of interior checkpoints, there is no, nothing in the legislation that says that they have to use interior checkpoints. That's something that they just decided to try, and the Supreme Court approved it in 1976. Um, but the Department of Homeland Security, the Biden administration, could change that tomorrow. They could say, you know what, we're not going to do these interior checkpoints. The data we have on them is that they're ineffective. They don't make a large number of immigration-related stops. Um, the Border Patrol spends almost 10% of their staffing hours at these interior checkpoints, but they account for less than 3% of their apprehensions. Um, but what they do do, and here's another example of how it's affecting American citizens, um, they make a lot of drug arrests at these interior checkpoints, but it's not people who are bringing drugs across the border. 91% um, of the people cited for drug possession at an interior checkpoint are American citizens, um, and over half of them have less than an ounce of marijuana. Um, which is legal in many of the states where they're setting up these checkpoints. So um, yeah, another immediate thing that could happen is just say, we don't want to do these checkpoints anymore to end that practice as something that the Border Patrol is doing. Um, and that would also, I think, similarly have a, an effect on migrant deaths because it is those interior checkpoints that are forcing people into the tractor trailers and into the desert. Mm -hmm. And so like, again, practically speaking, do you, is there, I mean, these decisions could happen, but will they? Like, do you see any sort of landscape of anything, ha you know, some sort of these sorts of decisions or even reforms happening in the next year, two years, three years? Todd, I think that's some that's a place where your work and, and my work kind of dovetail is that we see over and over again that it's not just the Republicans and the right wing that are in favor of this of violent borders and of the growth of the security forces. Um, you know, if you look at the 1990s when prevention through deterrence was put in place, um, the policy that forces people into the deserts um, and the size of the Border Patrol doubled in that decade, that was the Clinton era, right? That all of that happened. Um, I mentioned before the racial profiling review and the exemption for the Border Patrol, that was the Biden administration, I mean, the, um, the, the Obama administration that did that. So um, unfortunately, the, the left seems to be afraid to take actions to rein in the, the border and security forces. Um, I think it's often because it's not the first issue for a lot of voters on the left, right? People on the left are thinking about minimum wage, healthcare, you know, maternity leave, right? Everyday sort of issues. Yeah, they care about immigration as well, but that's not the top issue. So when Democrats get into power, they tend to focus on these other things. Um, but for the right, often immigration is one of the main issues, right? I mean, we saw that with the Trump campaign, and we see that with the way the Republicans talk today. So that when they're in power, they tend to ratchet these things up. And so um, it's it's this kind of period, it's these expansion and expansion, but then periods of not much happening, but not reducing the things that are happening there. Um, there certainly are efforts in Congress to, to shrink the border zone. There, um, over the last few 
Congresses, there have been bills proposed to shrink the border zone to 25 miles of the border, um, but they haven't passed, right? But uh, but there are people in Congress talking about these things. Um, I also understand that there is going to be a congressional effort to change that uh, the law behind that Egbert versus Boulay, that immunity for for federal officials um, as well. That's that's also in the works. So um, there are people in Congress that are aware of these things, but unfortunately other issues and major issues like climate change, um, the bill that was just passed a few days ago, um, tend to be a higher priority for, for people on the left. And, and it results in this kind of accruing and mission creep of the Border Patrol into this out of control agency that we have today. You know, going back to nobody is protected on the book. And just thinking about, yeah, what is like if, what is the most important thing about nobody is protected that you would want somebody reading it to take from the book. Yeah, I think you know I wrote nobody is protected to just understand how this agency got all these powers that that it ended up grabbing people off the street in Portland, Oregon when it was first set up to enforce rules at, about immigration at the border. Um, and I think that the thing that I would like people to come away with it is what we were were just talking about is that um, a lot of these decisions weren't they're not planned out. They're not thought through, right? Instead, it's this kind of building up, this sedimenting of different policies that end up having these effects that no one intended um, and giving this agency this vast power that wasn't what they were supposed to be. Um, and so I, I hope that readers would come away with it saying, you know, it doesn't have to be this way, right? That these are things that can be changed, right? And that we can make the world a better place. We can make the, the United States a, a safer place for people trying to migrate. We can make it a place where rights are respected again. Um, it just means understanding how it came to be this way and then deciding to do something about it. Um, and so hopefully people will will be inspired to, to take some action in this way, to talk to an elected official about the outrageous practices of the Border Patrol, um, and to hopefully see some changes there. Well, thank you, Reese Jones, for talking with us here at the Border Chronicle today. Um, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Reese Jones UH. That's probably the, the best place to locate me. Great. So go find Reese on Twitter and go read Not Only Nobody is Protected, but how many books have you written now, Reese? Um, I have four books. Yeah. So, four books. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they're all, yeah, they're all worth your time, really. I've learned so much from your writing and your, um, your scholarship, Reese. And I thank you kindly. And thanks again for being with us today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview is edited by me, Brenna Maytorenolara. If you like what you're hearing, please like us on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps others find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.